that song that we just sang, how sweet and awesome is this place. As you walk through the verses of that song, the setting of the song is a feast. It's a banquet. The invitation goes out. We are drawn in to come and sit down at the bountiful, gracious provision that Christ has won for us. And the song asks the question, Lord, why was I made to be a guest? Why am I here in this place? Why was I made to hear your voice when others starve and don't come to this feast? That setting of a feast, that setting of a banquet, and even in spiritual terms, kind of symbolizing the kingdom of God is really the the setting of our text this morning. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable in which he likens the kingdom of God to a banquet feast. Invitations are sent out. And the question of the passage is, who will come? Who will come to this banquet that the master has prepared? Luke 14, verse 15 says this, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege that is ours this morning to read your holy word, to listen to it, to think on what it is teaching us. And Lord, today we come to this parable, this story of Jesus that confronts us with uh, very important truths about the kingdom of God, about those who are invited and about those who will ultimately come and sit down at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to understand, to welcome, receive the word that Christ has for us today. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Have you ever been at a family gathering, maybe like Thanksgiving or Christmas, maybe an extended family gathering, or maybe you're a guest in someone's home that's maybe not your family, and the tension is so thick that you could cut it with a knife. 
you just feel it. Maybe there's been an argument, maybe something happened at the table and there's been a, an argument, a disagreement, and uh, maybe somebody offended the host, said something awkward. However it happened, there's that tension, there's that awkwardness. You can just kind of feel it. And the end result is there's just silence, right? Everybody's just kind of staring at their plate or maybe staring off at the ceiling and nobody wants to make eye contact. And, and then finally, somebody just blurts out something to kind of break the tension, to, to ease it a little bit. And somebody just blurts out something like, boy, I, I really like these potatoes. And, you know, it just, it doesn't help at all. It just kind of brings to the focus, puts everybody's attention on the fact that, yes, there's awkwardness going on right now. It's almost kind of what I think is going on in verse 15 of our passage this morning. Leading up to verse 15, going back to last week's message, there is tension in the air. You can feel it. Jesus was invited to the home of one of the chief Pharisees, on a Sabbath afternoon. A bunch of other Pharisees are there. Experts in the Mosaic law are there. And they're all gathered for this very special dinner at this very prominent Pharisee's house. And lo and behold, there is a man there who is sick. A man who has the dropsy or a a medical condition that manifests itself in severe swelling in parts of his body. The text seems to lead in the direction that this man was put there on purpose, maybe as a trap so the Pharisees could watch him and see if he would do something that was wrong, especially on the Sabbath day. And so they put this sick man there. Would Jesus heal on the Sabbath day or not? Well, really, there's no question about it from Jesus' perspective. It doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath day. It doesn't matter if if this is a setup. It doesn't matter if every eye is critically on him, watching to see what he will do. He has compassion on this man. He touches him and he heals him. And then he confronts the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. He confronts them about their hypocrisy, about the Sabbath day, about their own selfishness, how they would care more for their own animals, their oxen or their donkeys, maybe that had gotten stuck in a ditch or a well, on the Sabbath day, they would rescue them. They would exert effort and work to help them. But he says, you're not even willing to lift a finger to help this man, a fellow human being, a fellow image bearer of God on the Sabbath day. So he draws out their hypocrisy and their selfishness. And then he severely criticized them for their selfishness and pride by taking notice and drawing attention to the, to the way that they would come into the house and sit at the most honorable seats, closest to the host that they could get. They desired the praise of men and the positions of honor and esteem. And he he brought this out. He showed them their hypocrisy and their pride in seeking these positions. He showed them how they were unconcerned about the needs of the poor, because the only people they would ever invite to their dinner parties were their friends their rich neighbors, the other people that could at some point invite them back over and in some sense repay their generosity. Their acts of hospitality were nothing more than mutual back scratching. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. I invite you over for dinner, then you turn around and invite me over for dinner. He says, but you're ignoring the poor. You're ignoring the crippled, the lame, the blind. 
Well, that's what's happened at this dinner party so far. So you can imagine the tension, right? This Pharisee invites Jesus, sets a trap for him. Jesus evades their trap. In fact, puts them on the defensive by asking them questions about what they would do on the Sabbath day with their oxen, with their animals. And there's just dead silence. There's like crickets. They, they have no answer, no response for Jesus. And so then he accused them of being hypocritical and selfish and prideful. So you can imagine the tension that is there. And it's in that tension that I think it's like, quick, somebody say something, right? Somebody just get something out there and break this tension. And so somebody blurts out in verse 15, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And it's almost kind of like, Jesus has been putting his laser eyes of, of intuition, of knowledge, of opening up their hearts, and their consciences to see what's really going on in their thinking. Jesus just opened it up and, and this guy just kind of wants to break the tension and kind of smooth over it. And he says, in essence, hey, won't it be great when we're all in heaven? And we're all in the kingdom of God. And that statement reveals that he has completely missed the point of everything that Jesus has just said. And so he's going to elaborate more on what he's trying to say. So it's this, this statement of this other Pharisee, this unnamed Pharisee in verse 15, it really reveals a couple of fundamental false assumptions. One is the false assumption that he and the Pharisees that are there at that house that day, that they're all going to be in the kingdom. They're all going to be in the kingdom at the feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. The Pharisees thought they were in because they were righteous, because they were holy. And really there were some parts of the nation as a whole that thought they were in simply because they were children of Abraham. So, he has this false assumption, hey, won't it be great when we're all in heaven? Because we're all going to be there, right? Blessed is the one when we're all there in the kingdom of God, sitting at the feast. So that's one false assumption. The second false assumption is that he is looking at the kingdom of God as something that is totally and exclusively future, somewhere off in the distance and has no bearing on the present moment. Both of those assumptions are false. And Jesus is going to address those in this parable that he tells in verse 16. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So Jesus picks up on this man's comment Won't it be great for those who are in the feast in the kingdom of God? So he picks up on that concept of a feast or a banquet. And they're also sitting at a feast, aren't they? They're sitting at a dinner. And so he picks up on that theme, relates it to the kingdom of God, and tells this parable about a rich man, a wealthy landowner, sending out invitations to come to a banquet that he had prepared. Now, not all parables work this way and, and you don't want you don't you want to be careful to not press every parable and every detail of every parable allegorically. 
if you know what I mean by that. An allegory is where like something in the story relates to something else. And, and if you're not careful, you can over-allegorize a parable and come up with wrong ideas, wrong interpretations. But I think there are some aspects of this parable that are clearly allegorical and we can see the connections to what Jesus is talking about. So the man who is preparing the great banquet and inviting many guests to come is God, isn't it? It's God. God is preparing a banquet. The banquet relates to the kingdom of God. It relates to eternal life and invitations are being sent out. What's the invitation? The invitation is to salvation. The invitation is to repentance, to faith, to come into the kingdom. And who is the one who has been sent by God to draw them in? It's Christ, isn't it? So Christ has come. He has come to draw them in to this banquet that God has prepared, the kingdom of God. And so this rich man sends out the invitations. And then it says at the time of the banquet, He sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. I want you to notice, and this is common in the ancient world, that essentially what you have in verse 16 and 17 is you have two invitations. You have an initial invitation, like maybe days, weeks in advance, where he sends out the invitations and says, hey, I'm having this banquet such and such a day, please come. But then on the day, there is another kind of summons or call where someone goes out to all those who have been invited and say, hey, it's time. Now come. In between those two invitations, there is the assumption that if anyone had a problem, couldn't come, a conflict, if they had to say no, then they would say, I can't come. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be doing this. I can't be there on that day. But the assumption from verse 16 to verse 17 is that all those that received the original invitation were good with coming. They never RSVP'd back and said, no, I can't make it. And so then on the day when the banquet is ready, the the second summons goes out and says, hey, now it's time. Now everyone come. Again, somewhat allegorically, we can make the connection to the nation of Israel And we can see that the nation of Israel, in essence, accepted the first invitation, didn't they? They said, we're coming. God, through Moses, said, I'm making a covenant with you. And what did Israel say at Mount Sinai? We want this covenant, right? We want this covenant. We will do everything you command. We'll we'll obey the laws of Moses that you give him. And so Israel was issued the original invitation And they said, yes, we want to come. We want to be your people. We want you to be our God and we will serve you and we will follow you. We want to be a part of your kingdom. But now the banquet's ready. There's an aspect of the kingdom of God that is now, that's happening in front of their very eyes. Why? Because the king is there, isn't he? Jesus, the king is there. And now this second summons is coming out and Jesus, the one sent from God is saying, now it's the time to come. Now it's time to come, come into the kingdom, come and come to the feast, this great banquet that's been prepared for you. But notice they all start to make excuses, don't they? They all make excuses. 
The first said, verse 18, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Seems ludicrous, doesn't it? Seems like a cop out. Who buys a field without looking at it? I just bought a field. Now I need to go look at it. I need to go check it out. Who buys a field without looking at it, expecting it first? Verse 19, another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. One way of understanding that is I'm, I'm going out to test them. I'm going to go test drive them. Who buys a car before test driving it, right? Without looking at it. I just, I just bought some oxen and now I need to go make sure that they're good. Well, you should have done that beforehand. Another said, I just got married, so I can't come. He didn't know he was going to get married when the invitation first went out. These are all lame excuses, aren't they? They're lame excuses. They're, that's what they are. They're just excuses. And they're saying essentially through these excuses, no, I'm not coming. I'm not coming. And really what's at issue in all of these is their own selfishness, isn't it? Their own selfishness. What's more important than coming to the banquet of the king? My field my oxen, my wife, my family. Remember what Jesus said before, back in chapter 9? You've got to take up your cross and follow me. You can't put your hand to the plow and then look back. If you're going to come and be my disciple, you put your hand to the plow and you look forward. You move forward. You, you follow me. Earlier in Luke, we already saw, too, that Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law. And there's a time in which when the kingdom invitation is given, there's a choice that has to be made about what's more important. So what's more important, your land, your possessions, your family, or the kingdom of God? And they all say, no. We're not coming. Jesus' parables often have a twist like this, where where something kind of unexpected comes in. And here he throws into this parable something unexpected to emphasize the point that he is trying to make. What are the chances that everyone who was originally invited would not show up? Notice in verse 18, it says, but they all alike began to make excuses. So the three that we looked at, I just bought a field, I just bought oxen, I just got married. Those are just representative samples of all the original invitees who said, I'm coming. But then when the day came, they said, no, I'm not coming. All of them. What are the chances that the invitation goes out, everybody's good with coming, but then on the day, nobody shows up? How would you like to be that host? How would you like to be that bride or groom? You send out all these invitations and then on the day of your wedding, it's an empty church. Nobody shows up. You make all these preparations for a banquet. Nobody shows up. That's essentially the image that Jesus is presenting here. God has prepared a kingdom. He sent his Messiah, his Christ to come and invite you in. And you're all saying no. 
you're all rejecting him. Now remember who he's saying this parable to, right? He's saying it to the Pharisees. The religious leaders, the holy ones of Israel. You're all the ones making excuses saying, I can't come. I can't come to the kingdom. It's time. The meal is ready. The Messiah is here. No, I've got to go go do this or that. I've got more important things to do. Either for family or financial reasons, all these people reject the invitation. So the servant comes back, verse 21. He comes back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became angry. You'd be frustrated, wouldn't you? Send out all these invitations and nobody comes and nobody responds. He's angry and he orders his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. What an embarrassment. This grand host has an empty table because all of his original guests reneged on their original RSVPs. They said they were coming, but now they're not coming. He's angry, and so he instructs his servant to go out, invite others to come in. And notice who he's instructed to invite. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Where have we seen those classes of people before? Last week. Last week in the message, Jesus criticized the Pharisee, the host, because all they ever did was invite their friends and rich neighbors over for dinner. And when they did, they knew that they'd be repaid back again. Jesus rebuked them and said, don't just invite your friends, your rich neighbors. You should be inviting who? The poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. And the point that Jesus was making then, and he's making in this parable, is that's how God operates. That's how God operates. God invites the poor and the blind and the crippled to his table. Notice the Pharisees did invite one lame person, but he was just there as a prop, right? He was there as a pawn to get Jesus into a trap on the Sabbath day. They really had no concern for that man, but Jesus did, and he healed him. Now, in this story, it looks like there's a change of plans where all these invitations go out, and then nobody shows up. And so the, the owner has to scramble and come up with a plan B, right? Here's where you don't want to press the allegorism too far in a parable. Because if you press the allegorism too far in that sense, in this parable, then you come away with the theology that God didn't know that Israel or the Pharisees were going to reject him. And so he had to come up with a plan B. Nothing could be further from the truth. God knows exactly what's going on. He knows who he's invited. He knows who will come. He is not surprised by the hardness of heart of the Pharisees, is he? He's not surprised by that. He's not taken uh, off guard or caught off guard by that. In fact, we've already seen just a few weeks ago this image of the fig tree that represents the nation of Israel. And in this fig tree, this parable that Jesus tells There's this fig tree that has no fruit on it. For three years, he's come back and there's no fruit on it. And he says, cut it down. But then the the guy who's been taking care of the, the field, he says, no, just let it one more year. 
let me fertilize it. Let me, let me water it. And if we can get some fruit out of it, then good. But if not, then cut it down. And the language was most likely there won't be fruit next year and it'll be cut down. And that's happening right now in, as this passage unfolds, isn't it? This fig tree is not producing any fruit. Jesus is there. He's calling the Israelites. He's calling the Pharisees. He's calling the priests and the scribes, the religious leaders. He's calling them and they're all saying no. They're all saying we reject you. And so Jesus has already said, you're going to be on the outside looking in. While others from the north, south, east, and west are going to be sitting at the feast in the kingdom of God. Can you think of, from a Pharisaic perspective, anything more scandalous or shocking than Gentiles from the north, south, east, and west coming and sitting down at the kingdom of God, but they, Pharisees, on the outside, not there? And yet, that's exactly how it unfolded in the mission of Jesus. It's also how it unfolded in the mission of the apostles. By and large, now not exclusively, right? There, were, there, were, there was an Israel within an Israel. There were those like Peter and Paul and James and John. They were Jews. They were Israelites. They accepted Jesus, the Messiah. There are many others within Israel who accepted Jesus, the Messiah. But who were they within Israel? They were the poor, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the fishermen, the nobodies of society. They accepted Jesus. And then, but by and large, the rich and the wealthy and the powerful and even the religious leadership of Israel, they rejected Jesus. And really as a whole, you could say collectively as a whole, the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and put him on a cross. And so what was God's plan all along? I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 13. In Acts 13, verse 44, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Notice the same setting. It's a Sabbath day, isn't it? So who's Paul talking to on a Sabbath day? He's talking to Jews, isn't he? He's talking to Israelites, those of the covenant, those children of Abraham. So he's there on a Sabbath and, and he's, all these people have gathered there to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. So here's Paul and Barnabas, and they're trying to preach the word of God. They're trying to proclaim Jesus, the Messiah, to these Israelites on the Sabbath day and welcome them into the kingdom of God. And all these religious leaders and Jews are saying, what are you doing here? And they started opposing them and arguing with them and heaping abuse on them. And then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. Verse 46, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn where? To the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And notice what Paul does there. Where does he quote from in verse 47? He quotes from the Old Testament, doesn't he? He quotes from the prophets. Again, reinforcing the fact that this was no surprise to God. All along, it was his plan that when Israel, hard-hearted Israel, rejected their Messiah, God would send the good news out to the world. 
that all would come in. The last recorded words of Paul in the book of Acts are these. Acts 28, the last words that we see from Paul. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. The last thing that we hear from Paul in the book of Acts. You've rejected, so I'm going to the Gentiles and God's going to open their hearts and they will listen. What does that represent in the parable that we're looking at this morning? It represents the original invitees, the Israelites, the Pharisees, the scribes, the leadership of Israel saying, no, we can't come. And so God says, I want you to now go and invite everyone to come, the poor, the lame, the crippled, even Gentiles. Invite them to come in. And they all come in. And then there's still room, isn't there? What Jesus is teaching in this parable is exactly what we saw back in Luke 13, verse 30, when he said, Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. In other words, what I'm revealing to you is a complete reversal. It's upside down, isn't it? You would think the Israelites and the religious leadership would be in, but they're going to be on the outside. Those that were thought to be on the outside and excluded like Gentiles, they're going to be in with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 22, the servant comes back. Sir, the man said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. That's our mission, isn't it? We sang about it in that song, how sweet and awesome is this place. The the last verse says, Lord, how we long to see thy churches filled. That all the chosen race may come and gather and sing about your grace. So the Israelites rejected, but God said, go out into the country roads and lanes and compel them to come in because I want my house to be full And here's the thing we know from Scripture. God's house will be full. It will be full. All those that he saw from eternity past, all those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, they'll be there. They'll be there. And his house will be full. Then Jesus concludes in verse 24 with this statement. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, I want you to see something in verse 24, because it's important to the application of this parable. I want you to notice something in verse 24, where it says, I tell you, you see that word you there? That word you is plural. You all we had a a southern version of the bible that say i I tell you all right i tell y'all that word is plural now here's the thing throughout the parable verse 16 all the way to verse 23 it's been in the singular who are the two people who have been talking back and forth to each other the owner and the servant right the owner and the servant it's been in the singular just a back and forth exchange between the owner and the servant But now in verse 24, Jesus says, I tell you, plural, 
What does that mean? It means I think the parable is over in verse 23. The parable is over in verse 23. Verse 24 is Jesus now looking at all of those gathered in that house that day, gathered in the home of that Pharisee, and Jesus is saying to them, I am telling you, all of you right here, not one of those who was originally invited will be at my banquet. In other words, Jesus just told this parable about all those who rejected and would not come and made all the excuses. And Jesus looks to the Pharisees and basically says, I'm saying this to you. You're not going to be there. You're going to be on the outside looking in. They thought, the Pharisees thought, that they were at the head of the line, didn't they? We're at the head of the line. They thought they had the first class tickets already punched to the kingdom of God because they were Pharisees, because they were righteous, because they were law keepers, because they could trace their lineage through the 12 tribes of Israel back to Abraham. But Jesus tells them point blank range, you are not going to eat at my table. You're not going to be there. You think you are first, but you're actually last because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You think you're on the inside, but you're actually on the outside. So going back to that kind of awkward comment of the man in verse 15, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Yes, that is true. That is a true statement. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. There is great blessing for those who are in the kingdom of God. But Jesus is saying, it's not going to be you Pharisees. You're not all going to be there because you've rejected the Messiah. You've neglected the fact that the kingdom, yes, is future, but there are aspects, implications of the kingdom that are now. Because the invitation is going out now. And how you respond now to the invitation determines where you will sit in eternity in the kingdom of God. I keep going back to this image from chapter 13 because I think it really dominates this whole section of Luke, but that image of the fig tree, that fig tree is going to be cut down. There's no repentance on the part of the religious leadership of Israel. They're going to crucify their Messiah. And as a result, the outcasts, the Gentiles, are going to be welcomed in, and you apostate Jews are going to be on the outside, rejected. The opportunities are slipping away. This is the last time in Luke that we see Jesus sit down in the home of a Pharisee and have dinner with them. It's the last time. He has provided them with countless signs and proofs that he was in fact the Messiah, but they were blind, weren't they? They're blind to his miracles. They were deaf to his teaching. Their hearts were hard, as all of ours are, until the grace of God finds us. God removes the blinders from our eyes by grace so that we can see who he really is. I think there are really several points of application from this passage this morning. One is this. Why is it that you think you have a place in heaven? 
Why do you think that you will be there at that feast in the kingdom of God? Is it because of your heritage? Because of your family? Is it because of your morality, your charity, your good deeds? If the Pharisees did not get in based on their being part of the covenant people and their extreme righteousness and following the law, what makes you think that you'll get in based on that fact? A place at the table is granted by grace, not merit. Why do you think you have a place at the table? Perhaps you think you're on the inside, but maybe you're still on the outside looking in if you're basing your hope on yourself. But in the way God's grace works, it works opposite the way that we think. It doesn't work according to merit. It works opposite merit. It works regardless of merit. And the grace of God goes out to the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame. Do you see yourself that way spiritually? I'm poor. I'm crippled. I'm lame. I'm blind. I need Christ. If you have not yet responded to Jesus Christ, why not? What excuses do you have? We saw several excuses in this passage. Is it your money? Is it your pleasure, your entertainment, your family, your lifestyle? What is your excuse? What are you willing to trade for your soul? I believe this with all my heart. The, the, vast, the, the greatest reason why people reject Christ and even the greatest reason why people will claim to be atheists is not because they've really thought about it philosophically. The greatest reason why people reject Christ and even claim to be atheists is because they want to live their lives their way. They care more about their money. They care more about their pleasure. They care more about their autonomy, their, their own self-authority. They want to live their life their way. And they're just like those people who made all the excuses. The final application is for those of us who are in Christ and earnestly serving, striving to serve Christ, what kind of people do we give the message to? Are we guilty at times of seeking to bring in people who are like us or look like, look like us? Or do we have the eyes of Christ and the invitation that he sent out to the poor and the blind and the crippled and the lame? Who do we see as good candidates for the kingdom of God? not always who we think. God's grace goes out and finds all sorts of people, doesn't it? And so may our telling of the good news be like the grace of God in going out and finding all kinds of people that may not, from a human perspective, look like good candidates for the grace of God. And here's the thing, there are no good candidates, right? There really aren't any good candidates for the grace of God. No one has a good resume. We are all depraved rebels who deserve the wrath of God. Every one of us. So let us give the gospel out indiscriminately, lavishly, and invite all that we can to come in. Because here's what Jesus is teaching in this passage. Christ rejects those who try to make themselves righteous. Rather, he graciously makes righteous the spiritually blind, poor, and crippled. Those who see themselves as righteous are trying to make themselves righteous. They're not going to have a seat at the table. But those who see their condition as it is, 
as spiritually blind and crippled and poor, they're the ones who will ultimately be sitting at the table, won't they? God graciously makes righteous and brings into his kingdom the spiritually blind, poor, and crippled. And so may our eyes be opened to see our need and then turn to Christ as the only solution for that need. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the grace that you have lavished on us that is undeserved. We thank you that you have welcomed in the poor and the blind, the crippled, the spiritually dead. Thank you that you have awakened us. You have given us new life. Father, if there's someone here today that is still dead in their trespasses and sins, their eyes are still closed, their hearts are still hard, God, save them today. Save them. Draw them to yourself. Open their eyes by grace. Give them new life born from above. Father, for those of us who are children of God by grace, help us always to remember why it is that we have a seat at the table. It's not because of anything that we've done, but it's all because of your grace and what Christ has done. So Lord, may that, that reminder that we are here by grace, may that influence affect the way that we share your grace, your mercy with the world. Father, guard us from pride and self-righteousness Guard us from legalism. Guard us from the the way that we can look down on those who maybe are not as good as us. Remind us, Father, that none of us are worthy and that we're only here because you love us and have shown your grace to us. Lord, bless your people today and may your word of God go out and accomplish its purpose in our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.